beginning of summer, if you remember, we kind of jumped into the lectionary reading in the Gospel of Luke as Jesus makes his way to the city of Jerusalem. And by the point that we are in the reading right now, he's arrived, he's there. And he's attracted a lot of attention, hasn't he? He's garnered a lot of attention from the people and from the religious leaders. And Luke tells us in chapter 19 that Jesus had ridden into the city with a lot of fanfare. In fact, he says, when Jesus was on the approach to the city, that when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen, and saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And then when he got into the city, that when Jesus entered the temple courts and he began to drive out those who were selling, and he was saying, it is written, my house will be a house of prayer, but you've made it into a den of robbers. And after Jesus drove out those money changers and those merchants, he starts preaching right there in the middle of the temple courts, right where everyone can see him. And that brings us to our lectionary reading for today, which is going to be in Luke chapter 21, beginning in verse 5. Luke tells us some of his disciples, Jesus' disciples, began talking about the majestic stonework of the temple and the memorial decorations on the walls. But Jesus said, The time is coming when all these things will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. Teacher, they ask, when when will this all happen? What sign will show us that these things are about to take place? And he replied, don't let anyone mislead you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah. And saying the time has come. But don't believe them. And when you hear of wars and insurrections, don't panic. Yes, these things must take place first, but the end won't follow immediately. Then he added, nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes. There will be famines and plagues in the land. And there will be terrifying things and great miraculous signs from heaven. But before all this occurs, there will be a time of great persecution. You'll be dragged into synagogues and prisons. And you'll stand trial before kings and governors because you are my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell them about me. So don't worry in advance about how to answer the charges against you, for I will give you the right words and such wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to reply or to refute you. Amen? So now remember the temple that we were talking about that I was mentioning to the kids was, was the heart of Judaism in the first century. And not only was it their religious capital, but it also functioned as the focus of their national life. It was a symbol of God's hand of providence on the people of Israel. The temple was the the center of study and the teaching of the Torah and the propagation of Jewish culture and tradition. It was where the priesthood upheld their importance and where they made their income. It was the focus of pilgrimages and the scene of all the major festivals on the Jewish calendar. You can see how important it was. Because to the Jewish people, the temple was the divine dwelling place of God. The place that set Israel apart as the only nation on earth where God chose to live. In a building designed and ordained by God himself. Now the structure of the temple, the actual building part, was architecturally huge and magnificent. 
And its complex of buildings took up almost a quarter of the city of Jerusalem. The design of the, the main building itself was laid out with an emphasis on the importance of holiness and separation. And as you walk through it, it re- required entering progressive levels of, of purity and separation from the outside people until gradually the final room excluded all but the high priest himself in the Holy of Holies. And the whole complex was very heavily guarded to ensure order and dignity among the people. Especially because just prior to today's events in the Holy City, it was filling up with folks who were flocking to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Now, I've shared this with uh, Bible study before, but it, one of my favorite authors, uh, Alfred Edersheim, wrote kind of about this, and I'll share with you what he wrote about the excitement that surrounded the people heading into the city. He's talking about the pilgrims here. He said, Before them lay Jerusalem in all her festive attire. All around, pilgrims were hastening toward it. White tents dotted the meadow with the bright flowers of early spring and the darker foliage of the olive plantations that lined the route up to the town. Curls of smoke rose from the temple area, whose buildings of snow-white marble and gold glowed in the last of the evening light. The streets within the city were thronged with strangers, and the flat roofs were covered with eager gazers feasting their eyes on the sights of this sacred destination. Doesn't that sound incredible? And in our reading today, Jesus and his disciples were walking near this magnificent temple complex when some of them started talking about how beautifully it was adorned. These beautiful stones and these great gifts dedicated to God and pointing out its architectural grandeur. And Jesus comes along and basically says, don't be too impressed. Because what you see here is not permanent. He told them, a time is coming when all of these things, all those magnificent buildings will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of the other. Because what they didn't realize was that the temple might look pretty on the outside, but it was pretty rotten on the inside. And even if all of this grandeur and beauty might be impressive to you, the religious system it was designed to promote was falling apart, even though most of the people didn't realize it yet. And so Jesus told them it would all be thrown down and destroyed, and when he told that to the folks that were listening to him, they were shocked. It wasn't the response they were expecting. And it made them frightened about the future. Just like sometimes you and I can be, right? And the disciples' questions were no different than some of the questions that we have today. When is all this going to happen? When is the end going to come? What signs should we be looking for? Right? It's a question people are still asking every day, right? And you know, Jesus didn't directly answer their question, did he? Instead, what he did is he painted them a picture. A picture of warring nations and insurrections and earthquakes and famines and plagues and frightful signs in the heavens. And you know, as we read this, it's really kind of easy to hear those texts and either be overwhelmed by all the apocalyptic imagery and let yourself become frightened, or to ignore it altogether and just think, oh, I'll think about that tomorrow. From Vicky's favorite character, right? And Gone with the Wind, right? Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll think about that tomorrow. But you know, that fearful imagery and those dreadful portents aside, I know that many of us have been wondering lately if we aren't seeing our world fall apart right in front of us today. Because you know, we're still living with the effects of the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression. Politically and culturally, we're divided as a nation more than ever. 
Our country is still at war on several fronts. Terrorist attacks have escalated around the world. And if you're noticing, the planet's been plagued with an increasing number of hurricanes, tsunamis, and earthquakes. And it's not only the world that seems to be falling apart, but the worldwide Christian church seems to be falling apart too. You know, major denominations that were once bastions of truth have begun denying the authority of Scripture, which is why it's so important that we start out with these guys learning about it today. Some are minimizing the exclusivity of Christ's atonement. Others are not only accepting but celebrating ungodly lifestyles. And so with doctrine and truth being abandoned, some liberal forms of Christianity have begun to transform into a whole new humanistic religion right in front of us. And thinking about all that can be pretty scary, can't it? So when you consider Jesus' words and the state of our world, we have to ask ourselves, how do we as followers of Christ keep pressing on in the midst of trying times when we have absolutely no idea, no idea what tomorrow will bring? And in our gospel reading today, the real focus, though, of Jesus' words is not on the end of the world itself or on the signs that accompany it. The focus that he's making is what it should mean for us as his followers. And even though the disciples want to know when these things are going to happen so they'll know what to do, instead Jesus tells them what not to do. What not to do when the world is falling apart. What not to do when they find themselves on trial. And what not to worry about no matter what persecutions might come. And that's important to remember. And we've talked about this a lot in Sunday school over the past year, too, that this part of the lesson where Jesus talks about persecution is probably the part that feels the most distant from us as Christians having been born and raised in the United States. Most of us haven't experienced that type of persecution or hatred that followers of Christ in many ways experience outside of this country and in many parts of the world. But, you know, on the other hand, following Jesus will often put you and I at odds with the values of this world and at times with the values of our friends and maybe even with our own family members. Because the truth is our faith is on trial every single day, whether you realize it or not. It's on trial in the day-to-day choices that we make. It's on trial in where we spend our money and how we spend our time. And it's challenged whenever tragedy and trials come calling in our lives. You know, I found this earlier in the week. Someone has written... You've probably seen this posting. We're all just a car crash, a diagnosis, an unexpected phone call, an unforeseen moment, or a broken heart away from becoming a completely different person. How beautifully fragile are we that so many things can take but a moment to alter who we are forever. That's really true, isn't it? And the point is, life is short. It's unpredictable. So in light of that, how are you and I react when our individual world is falling apart? And in our gospel lesson, as I said, Jesus doesn't give us advice as to what to do. He tells us what not to do. And there's three pieces of advice that he gives us. And the first one is don't be led astray by false teaching or bad advice. Don't be led astray by false teaching or bad advice. He also says don't panic when the unexpected happens. And finally, don't be afraid of the future. Don't be afraid of the future. But you know, when our world is falling apart, most people, whether Christian or not, actually end up doing the very things that Jesus tells us not to do, don't we? 
I'm just as guilty of that as anyone else is. And we let ourselves become deceived and be led astray. And you know, if you look around at society, you only have to turn on television to realize that even to the most casual observer, the culture of our day, the spiritual culture is declining in this nation, isn't it? Jesus warned that as time goes on, there's going to be an increase in deception and a tremendous potential for people to be misled. In verse 8, Jesus said, Don't let anyone mislead you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah, saying the time has come, but don't believe them. And you know, this deception thing is nothing new, is it? It's as old as the story of the Garden of Eden. Right? If you remember, the first thing Satan did in tempting Eve was to dispute the reliability of God's word, didn't he? Satan appeared to Eve in Genesis 3.1 and said, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Has he indeed said that? And he's suggesting to Eve that either she misunderstood what God meant, or maybe he's trying to keep her from something really good. And it's no different in 2016. It's no different today. And one of the ways that happens today goes something like this. You have this clear, plain word of God in front of you. It tells you that something that you really want to do is something that God really doesn't want you to. And the next thing you know, someone creeps up alongside of you and offers an alternative interpretation of the text. One that makes it more palatable for you to do what you want to do. Or to convince you that those principles laid out in the scripture were only for a certain time. Or for a certain place or for certain people. But I want you to know that every single time Every time that you give a little ground to the flesh and lose ground from the word of God, it's not very long before Satan moves in and fills that void, is it? And one of the easiest places to see that deception at work in the world is how our culture talks about and views sin today. We don't talk about it very much, right? We don't use the word adultery anymore. Now we call it having an affair. Sodomy is now just an alternative lifestyle. Abortions are not considered murder. They're simply our right to make a choice. And we speak out against those things not because we hate people. That's the important thing to know. Not because we hate people, but because we affirm that if we are really made in the image of God, then these bodies are sacred. Right? If we're really made in the image of God, then these bodies are sacred. So surely everything we do with them has to be sacred too. Everything. And brothers and sisters, we have to hold on to that truth as little by little the idea of absolute truth is being eroded out of our culture. And the only sure way to keep balance against that deception is to know the scripture and to obey God's word and what he tells us to do, right? You've got to read this book, just like I told the kids. You can't sleep with this under your pillow and think you're going to get it by osmosis, right? You have to open it and read it. And not only are we not to be deceived, secondly, he warns us, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid as we deal with a constant barrage of negative and frightening predictions about the future. You know, Jesus said, when you hear of wars and insurrections, don't panic. Yes, these things must take place first, but the end won't follow immediately. So what Jesus is doing here is correcting the mistaken impression of the disciples that everything that happens is a sign of the end of times. You can get lulled into thinking that. Yes, the Bible does tell us what to expect. We are given prophecies and signs, but none of them come with timestamps. Because the purpose of prophecy doesn't center around our perfect knowledge of every detail 
and how it will play out in our lives, but to show us that God is in control so that we won't need to be afraid of anything. And this actually, I think, couldn't be a more timely message in light of our polarizing presidential election, right? Where, you know, whichever candidate that we identify with the most, whether Democrat or Republican or Independent, has proclaimed some kind of political savior. And the one that we personally oppose is condemned as a devil, right? But Jesus comes along and says both of those views are wrong, just like they were wrong about the temple. Because no political party are ever permanent, right? No human ruler has an absolute grip on righteousness. And no government, whether liberal or conservative, or somewhere in between, will ever supplant the plans and the purposes of Almighty God. You see, we can't make the same mistake that people made in Jesus' day who were looking for some enigmatic leader who shared their political opinions and could facilitate all of their personal desires. But instead, we need to keep our eye on an eternal solution, and one that can only come in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. And if our hope is in God's providence, and if we believe that he is in control, then we can be confident even when the world around us is in chaos. And we can use those circumstances as an opportunity to point to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. He says to us, this will be your opportunity to tell them about me. For I will give you the right words and such wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to refute or reply to you. You know, now usually when we think of an opportunity, we think of it as something good, don't we? Right? We speak of an opportunity to try something new or to learn a new skill or accept a new job. We say things like, this will be a great opportunity for her. Right? This is a fantastic opportunity for him. And we usually don't think of problems or political unrest or the possibility of international conflicts as opportunities, do we? But you know, Jesus does. And he wants us to use those moments to testify about him, to share our story, our personal story, to share how Jesus has impacted our lives, how he's transformed us, and to be a witness as to whether we believe Jesus is who he says he is. Do we believe it? If he undergirds every aspect of our lives, if he is a real foundation on which we can stand, or just an idea that we drag out from time to time to comfort us. You know, and if you're not sure today which side you fall on between fear and faith, don't leave here today without making that decision. God tells us in Isaiah 55, 6, he says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he's near. And you know, if you hear Christ calling to you today, if you feel the Holy Spirit reaching out to you today, don't turn away. Don't turn away. You You don't have to come down front. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to do anything external. All you have to do is say, Lord, I hear you. I hear you. Help me to hear you more. Because the end is coming, whether it's the end of our world or the end of our individual lives, and you won't always have a chance to receive him. It's a limited time offer. And brothers and sisters, we don't know everything the future is going to hold, do we? We don't know exactly where our culture is headed. We don't always know the right person to put our faith in. So today, more than ever, we need to have our feet firmly planted on the foundation of our redemption. Our redemption by the grace of God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ revealed to us through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who is seeking to save all that are lost. Amen.
Will you pray with me? Lord God, we pray for, for the, all the hearts that you are calling out to today, and Lord, I thank you for them. We ask, Lord, that for each one that you are reaching out to, that you would surprise them by the reality of your presence. That you would help them, Lord, to realize that we don't worship a tame and safe little idol of a God that can be contained in a box, but rather the God of heaven and earth. Lord, we ask you to move with power on this fellowship today and increase your kingdom. We ask, Father, that you would reach out to every heart, Lord, who is seeking you and invite them, Father, to you today before they leave this place. We thank you, Father, for the truth of your word. I thank you, Father, for your spirit's anointing on this house. And we ask, Father, that all that we do and say this week may give you glory. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.